Well, good morning. You can have a seat. And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 2 John. The book of 2 John. I would imagine for many of you, this week is something that you've looked forward to for a long time, being Thanksgiving, and you can eat as much as you want without the shame of your spouse or your friends. This is where the diet finally pays off. But also for many of us, and in different ways and in various circumstances, this week builds up to the point where we now have to sit with other people, or we might have to dine with other people who, who think we are for lack of a better word, morons for what we believe. The idea that we believe that the Son of God came to the world is beyond their comprehension or even their desire. And in different ways and in various circumstances, the legitimacy of of who Jesus Christ is is always available for an argument. Whether it's his humanity or his divinity, his lordship or his presence, people question or attack what Jesus really was and very much is today. The passage for our sermon comes from the beginning of the book of 2 John. And and here John will address what to do when your home or your relationship or even your dinner table is being used by attackers to defame the truth of the gospel. You'll come to this book seeing others around it with the same name. Not to be surprised, in front of it is 1 John and after it is 3 John. In comparison, 2 John looks a lot like 3 John because it's short just like that book, but in many other ways, 2 John addresses the same basic things that 1 John does. False teachers who are attacking congregations under John's care. Heretics, as church history will call them, were traveling from church to church, taking advantage of Christian hospitality as they spread their toxic and ungodly lies trying to bring down who Christ is and and put in his place something that just isn't real or isn't true. And we think about that and we go, man, those people had it really bad in that circumstance. But yesterday I was looking at statistics from uh, Barna.com and it said that 93% of America think that Jesus was a real person, which is a great start. But then 43% of those, 93%, think that he was not God living among man but that he was just a man living among men. So John writes this letter, or 2 John as we refer to it as, to warn his readers and in many ways warns us to guard themselves against these types of people. And what I think is so fascinating is how he goes about saying you need to guard the fame and the glory of who Christ is amongst other people in unique ways. His letter Or his warning addresses a problem. And that problem is misapplying the command of the extent of love. Misapplying it to the the point of supporting false teachers. Godly practical love has its boundaries. And John is saying that it must be used. That this love must be used within the framework of real and whole truth. So the presence of false teachers is a common experience within the church as a whole, not just historically, but also in our cases. People say wrong things. They promote false doctrine. They influence others with teaching that we can look at and say, that's not true. Now, sometimes they do this because, frankly, they just don't know. But oftentimes, we see in this text, 
that they also do this maliciously and with ill intent. So with that in mind, let me read to you from the first six verses of the book of 2 John with a question being posed to you from this passage. If attackers of the truth are trying to come into the doors of the church, what should the church do? Let's hear from God's word. The book of 2 John, starting in verse 1, says, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. A couple of weeks ago, I read a story about the NBA team, the Oklahoma City Thunder. And the reason why I read this story is because I'm from Oklahoma City, and I, I'm not a basketball fan. I have no idea. I've never played a YMCA game. I went to one practice, and I realized that junior high wrestling is for me. But the, the amazing thing about the Oklahoma City Thunder is that they truly don't belong in Oklahoma City. In part, they don't belong in Oklahoma City because they used to be in Seattle, and then Oklahoma City stole them. And also, Oklahoma is not a basketball place. I mean, we have colleges here and there. We have high schools that play basketball, and people get fired up. We're not Indiana. We're not Chicago. We're certainly not L.A. But then all of a sudden, in 2008, here came this team, and people lost their minds. And not only did people lose their minds, but all of a sudden, the Oklahoma City Thunder were really, really good. I mean, names that I can't even remember because I don't know them that well. And names you might not even remember, but all of a sudden this team who came from nowhere was beating people left and right. And the story of this book told the story of the Oklahoma City Thunder in a unique way. It, it told the present story of what was happening, but it used the story of Oklahoma to explain just the reality of what in the world is happening. So the idea that Oklahoma City stole the thunder from Seattle, well, in many ways, Oklahoma was stolen from Native American tribal lands. Or the state capital, it's in Oklahoma City, but it was actually first in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And I know that because I went to elementary school in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And once a year, we remind ourselves, they stole what was ours. <laughs> so you can explain what's happening with what happened in the past. And I, I like that idea of explaining the present with what happened in the past, because if you take a step back, everything can be explained with where we came from, or who we're related to, or what kind of house that we grew up in. Everyone has a story. You have a story, even a unique story from the person left and right of you, and your story is unfolding. And for Christians, our stories are incredibly unique when you compare it to the world. There are things that we are supposed to do, things that we want to do, things that we must do that seem so otherworldly. But when the, when the Christian life is examined, if you, if you look at where you are today, even in your walk, your story should be unpacked and explained and told from the truths that have happened long, long ago. 
You might be tall or short or old or young or you grew up in a house with one mom or you grew up in a house with 50 people. But your new identity is not what is happening currently but can be explained of what happened long ago. So with that, I hope to show you that this text, that the gospel appears and shows itself as something that transforms and unites God's people for his glory through his kingdom's advancement. And what John, I think, is trying to unpack is when there is an enemy outside coming in in unique ways, there are things that we must do as a church to guard ourselves from that and to keep advancing God's kingdom. So I've got two things. The first one, if you're using an outline, the first one is this. What does John want us to do when faced with false teachers? First thing is to be reminded that God's people are grounded in the gospel. God's people are grounded in the gospel. So just looking at the text, I want you to notice all all of God's people that John speaks of. There are are a couple of highlights here of who John is speaking about. The first one is he's talking about himself. So a letter opens up in a normal way where he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Or if we were writing this letter, I would say Asher to, you know, my wife Brooke, a love letter. John here is writing as this author, but also the author that we've seen other times, not only in 1 John and in 3 John, but also the author of the book, the Gospel of John. He's writing to us as an apostle, someone who was recognized and commissioned by Jesus to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was known as a follower, as a disciple, as an apostle, given great authority over what the church must do and what the church must not do. But he refers to himself as an elder. I think there are two things here that this shows up. One, I think it's just naturally he's referring to himself as an older man wanting to give great advice to a church that he loves so dearly. So we see this pastoral tone come out to him that that he could say, I am this rank, this rank, this rank, and this rank. But he's writing to them as their elder. But also this, this word elder comes across with an authoritative tone within this context that when they receive this letter, it's not just from a random guy off the street, but as an elder of the church of Christ and one who knows them deeply, and one who has grown in wisdom and glory in the sight of the Lord. His pastoral tone is all over this letter, much that we would see in 1 John. This letter has very much similarities to where in 1 John, he refers to his people as little children. Not in a way that mocks them, not in a way that you might look at someone else and call them little or young or inadequate, but he calls them little children or dearly beloved. The second person that John brings up is the the sister, the elect lady and her children, or the elect sister as it's referred to in other translations. Now, there's a lot of debate about who this sister is. External evidence, I think, would show that the elect sister or the elect lady is talking about a church in particular or several other churches who would get this letter. Some people think it's referring to a real person, a real lady inside the church, or a real lady who John would have a relationship with. I think if we just use what is normally used as metaphors within the New Testament, we would see this as John writing to a church or churches. But also internal evidence here where he's not only writing to the elect lady, but also her children. We would see them as disciples within the church, or in our context, church members. So if someone were writing to DSC, they might use a feminine tone as she or her, and then also talking about her beloved or her members. 
But I, but I also love how the scriptures just notably speak about the church as something that is wonderful and something that is cherished. John speaks about her or the church as something that he loves in truth or with sincerity, another way it could be put. And not only does he love her in truth, but other people who are also in the truth, they love the church as well. But God's people are being grounded in the gospel here. They're they're unified not in color or in occupation or in proximity of how close they live to one another, but they are being grounded in the true gospel. What makes them unique is that they are together, not by anything they've done for themselves, but by what the Lord has done for them and through Jesus to them. They see this church for who it is. All these other people that know about the church, or even John in particular, and they love them with full sincerity or in truth because it's the truth that unites them. The third group that if you were to look at who John is talking about is we see this in the word elect, the elect lady. It might just be a throwaway comment, this lady who John is writing to her, the church that John is writing to, but he calls her an elect lady bringing about the the reality from Scripture of what does elect or election mean. Election in the Scriptures is God's divine choice of picking some particular people for everlasting life. And it's not because of their own merit or what they would do later on or, or anything of who they were because the Scriptures say that everyone is equal at a base minimum. We're all sinful and we sin and we're born into sin. But those people he chose to love and call out and single out with his mercy and with his joy. We see this in other parts in the New Testament where Ephesians 1 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Or 1 Thessalonians, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Or 2 Thessalonians, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Or lastly, in 1 Peter, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of the blood, my grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, why do I bring this up for us to notice? First, I think if you are a Christian, I want you to be reminded of who you are. You are elected by the sovereign Lord of the universe for love from him and through Jesus. It's no accident that you are where you are. It's no accident that when you look at your past sins, you you regret them deeply. But when you look at your identity in Christ, you, you feel an overwhelming presence of his love. You're elected by God to salvation and sanctification and eternal life. How incredible this is just to go to this word in this passage and already feel that John is recognizing not only his devotion to his people, but God's devotion and love for them. And then second, John is writing a warning letter, but he's not too quick to get to the argument before reminding himself and his readers that true joy and true unity are grounded in what God has done. And from recognizing what God has done, we can then place ourselves in in trust in what he will do through us. So seeing John as himself and and the church as the sister and to the elect, he's writing to a chosen people, a fought for people, a people redeemed by God is worth sending his son Jesus 
to serve through sacrificial death. Charles Spurgeon says that election shapes everything in our minds. And for John, the election of these people is the base for his desire for them to press on or to build up and to cherish the continual work of God in the advancement of his kingdom. He writes to them out of love, not of anything that they've done or anything that he has done for them, but out of love because of what God has done to them and through them and for them. He writes to them because in them he recognizes the love poured out by the Father, sending of the Son and the Son saving through the cross and the Spirit giving regenerating wind of understanding for the sinner to recognize and call out to the Lord Jesus as their Savior. So even within those first three, it helps set the context of what this letter is about. It ups the ante of of what John is trying to accomplish because of who he's talking to. So I don't want you to not only notice who he's talking to, but, but now here notice how he speaks of the gospel. So godly people are supposed to be grounded in the gospel, but look at how John speaks of this gospel. First, he calls it truth, or it's recognized as truth. John Calvin says that nothing is deemed more precious by God than truth. And the story of God is the unfolding mercy we describe as the gospel. Where the gospel is the good news that our holy God is not abandoning his people due to their own sin, but has rescued them to himself through the sacrifice, service, life, and reality of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. The men and women, you and I, are separated from God in our natural walk. The Holy Spirit awakens them. And it awakens us to the reality and position of our sin that our first response is to call out to him and to repent of our sins and to call out to him as our savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the business of truth is to set us free from sin. And so we see that this lights the soul on fire, as other people would say. That, That John here is highlighting the truth that combines or unifies these people and, and we don't see the truth here in this text is, well, two plus two equals four, so I just, I just need to have this realistic paradigm of what the church is like. When John is talking about the truth, he means the gospel in particular. Now, other parts in the New Testament say that we should grow in our knowledge of this gospel, and we certainly should. We see that in 2 Peter where we have those stepping stones almost where, where we want to grow in our understanding of the faith and also grow in our practice of it. In other parts of 1 John, it says that we should examine ourselves in relation how we understand it. Even if you come to counseling in this church, the first thing that we're going to talk about with you is, do you understand the gospel? Because with a right understanding of the biblical gospel, everything else starts to fit in place as it should. You don't like people who you're around? Do you understand the gospel? You have a hatred of everything around you? Do you understand the gospel? You are lazy or slothful or or taking things that are not yours. You need to understand the gospel. And in this context, second, second, or in the context of 2 John, John is wanting to ground us in the gospel so that we know how to fight against those who are battling against the gospel. John speaks of the gospel as truth. It's something that unites. It's truth that enlivens. It's truth that redeems. Five times in this short letter, he brings up the gospel or the truth. And it's always brought up as something that either unites us or we should defend or we should fight for. 
But also we see of how he talks about the gospel. We see the gospel as something that is from God the Father and God the Son. We see there in verse 2 and 3. John is emphatic when he places Jesus Christ on the same level as God the Father. John repeats the word and from and notes that Jesus is the Son of God the Father. Because the battle at hand in this context is that Jesus' humanity and divinity are trying to be separated and also trying to be added onto. People would go around and either say he wasn't fully human or he wasn't fully God, but John wants all of us to know that Jesus Christ is truly man and truly God, and this is the foundation for our salvation. An animal sacrifice was not good enough for me. Even another person's sacrifice was not good enough to me. But the God-man must be sacrificed for me. So Jesus, in his full humanity and in his full divinity, John wants to raise this up and say, if there's anything else that you believe, it's not okay and it's not true. Now we'll see next week later on in this book how that actually folds out. And we'll even see in the context of Albuquerque, New Mexico, of how there are different identities that, that call themselves Christian people who are breaking down at the divinity and the humanity of the gospel, breaking down at the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Because this is the foundation of our salvation, that Jesus is who he is. So from God the Father and God the Son, as truth, notice how he speaks of the gospel, that it abides in us. The true gospel abides in man, or put another way, it stays in man. It remains in man. The abiding of the teaching of Christ stays with us forever. So here, while the truth certainly has a doctrinal aspect in this context, the phrase that abides in us and will be with us forever, in verse 2, suggests that more than doctrine is involved. It's not just a class that you can take to understand the gravity of this text. Because a close parallel of what John has also written in John chapter 4, the, the gospel of John chapter 14 and verse 16, where Jesus promised his disciples that God the Spirit would be with them forever and that he said it would be better that the Spirit would be with them forever. He remains with you and will be with you. The truth the author speaks of here is the manifestation of the Spirit of truth who is permanently within the believer. So just... Just try to fathom that. You could spend the rest of your day trying to fathom that and trying to, trying to see the glory of God. That, that how John talks about the gospel, you, you can keep it on a top shelf and speak of it you know, doctrinally and say, man, I could think about that forever and come up with all kinds of cool theological words. But don't miss the reality that it abides in the believer. The spirit of God, Christian, is in you. So, so when enemies are at the gate or even at the table, friend, be encouraged. The Spirit of God himself is inside of you. Something that a weapon can't provide, something that even a great argument can't provide. And so all of this we see as a has a unifying effect on the people who would read this. Just take note of how many times the word us is used in just the first part of this book. Just the first two paragraphs in proportion to the rest of his words, the, the reality of the word us, an apostle, a personal disciple of Jesus, a true influencer of all history sees the work of the gospel as unifying under the lordship of Jesus. 
Something that we must keep in mind. Now, in particular, I think in our church's case, well, I'll use this example. One of the ways I've seen the best place to have a child, and I don't speak of this from experience, I cannot have a child. The best place to have a child is in a really small church. Because in a really small church, everyone knows what's going on. Everyone identifies with what's going on. You, you have a child in a church of 150 people, you've got more cribs coming at you and more clothes coming at you. You know, there are so many things that will just inundate you with love and care because you are a part of everyone's lives. And so Lord willing, our church will continue to grow. And, and we've seen the Lord do amazing things, not only in terms of holiness, but also in bringing people to new faith and also bringing people from other parts of the country to a unifying camaraderie within this church. But as we get into the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, it becomes easier for us to take a back seat and either choose to not know what's going on or choose to hide from behind a curtain. And re remind yourself that in the fight of life, John speaks about us. He doesn't speak about me. He speaks about us. And there are gifts and talents in a spiritual way that, that your friends around you and your combined believers around you need you and you them. So you look around and you see hundreds of people and it's awesome. I love sitting up front because I can hear hundreds of people singing. But friend, remind yourself and look around as often as you can and place yourself into the lives of other people because the gospel, when it's, re when it's grounded in the biblical truth, unites what was obviously separated in a world destitute by sin. So lastly, within this first point, I want you to notice the effects of the gospel. We see this in verse three. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. Grace, mercy, and peace is an uncommon phrase in the New Testament. We often say things like this, maybe in letters or in emails, these throwaway Christianese comments. But don't skip over this, this common greeting that we see in the New Testament. There, there's always things like this. Typically, they're said, with grace and mercy will be with us. Here it says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Just focusing in and meditating on those words and understanding what those words mean not only enlivens or brings about a greater understanding of what this letter is supposed to do, but also it shows us all the work that God has done for us. Grace removes guilt from your life. Mercy removes misery and it, and it shows you what God does for you when you didn't deserve it. Peace expresses an extension in grace and mercy. Grace points to the absolute freedom of God's love in relation to man's helplessness to earn it. Mercy is his tenderness towards man's misery, not showing him the just wrath that, that you and I deserve, but giving us mercy. And then peace here we see standing for the harmony or the trust or the rest or the safety or the freedom. And it is God's gift to man. The succession of grace Mercy and peace marks the order from the first motion of God in salvation to the, to the final satisfaction of man, where God can look to us and see the work of his son, and we can look to God and not feel heavy burdened any longer. One of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress, and, and right off the bat, Pilgrim's Progress gets really good. The, the pilgrim had this heavy backpack on him, 
it talks about. And when the backpack comes off, when he, when he knows the freedom that God gives him in perfect, or in, when God gives him um, in justifying him and declaring him righteous and forgiving him of his sins, the pilgrim continues on this life that doesn't hide its dangerousness or its weird circumstance or its harsh realities, but that backpack is gone. The weight of facing danger isn't quite as bad because he knows that he belongs to the Lord. So when John brings up grace, mercy, and peace, we should look at that and go, not only do I identify with that, but also what it teaches me about God's love to where I can be fully grounded in the gospel. God's people are grounded in the gospel. The gospel is worthy to be grounded grounding your life in because the gospel transforms you and God's work through you and justifies you to where you are no longer in a position of deserving wrath, but you are now in a position of being greeted by others in unity, receiving the promise of grace, mercy, and peace. God's glory is made known through the work of Jesus, and it's the work of Jesus that unites us, of which John is writing to. And our submission to him as a king is grounding ourselves in his righteousness. It's it's how his kingdom is made known to others, bringing them into a fold of new life and being blessed all along the way. Now, if you are not a Christian, I hope that you are seeing what John is trying to expose to you, that the reality of the gospel is so different than anything else you can hope to achieve in life. And like others, like how he forgives and redeems others, he can do the same for you. What the gospel does is it shows up in your life. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, the the natural reaction for you is to repent of your sins and to see him as the Lord. And when you look at what's at stake of on the other side of the gospel and what he's given you, how would you not turn to him? So friend, if you're not a Christian, we hope that you will look to the Lord as a savior, as someone who brings people in with grace, mercy, and for your peace in his glory. It's staring you in the face. John writes to people just like you who need to be grounded in the gospel rather than grounded in anything else. And today you can be. He offers this to you freely. So first, God's people are grounded in the gospel. Second, God's people, God's people are fueled by obedience. Second, God's people are fueled by obedience. John exhorts his readers to remain in truth. And then secondly, to keep God's instructions. I want you to notice just what a simple report can do to John. Look at verse 4. It says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John says that he knows that these people who he's writing to are walking in the truth. What he's bringing out is what John John Stott writes about where he says that Christ's lovers prove their love by their obedience. So John is writing to people and he's saying that I know that you love the Lord because I see you walking in the truth walking in the gospel, being so influenced by what God has done through the gospel that it becomes your daily walk. Where the Lord goes, you follow. Walking in the truth, this expression expresses the idea of a believer who confesses the truth of God from his word and who lives in obedience to God's command. The the people's lives are governed by God's law. We're we're people of the book or we're Bible-believing people or we're Christ followers. 
In just this simple phrase, we see how big of a deal it is when others know the Lord. One of my favorite things in hearing parents talk about is not how awesome their kids are. Like, I don't, I don't care if your kid's good at, at, you know, Little League Baseball. I don't care, you know, because they're going to grow up and they're no longer going to be allowed to play Little League Baseball. And then what? You know, I love hearing from parents where they say, I, I just see my son or I see my daughter walking in the Lord. And, and they freely admit that it's not from their parenting or, or it's not from the influence or, not, or it's not anything else but what God has done in them. The joy that comes to them is something that they can't place in something that will fail them later on. You know, if I say I have a lot of joy in what the stock market is doing, hang on a second because it will fail you. I have so much joy in my house and then it floods. It was just working yesterday. And here we see that John sees people knowing the Lord and walking in truth and he rejoiced. What a word. And not only him, but other people saw the gospel effect is a huge, huge deal. John 2 is fueled by God's command. By, by John's use of the word father, he reminds his readers that the truth came through Jesus Christ and the one and only who is at the father's side we see in John 1. The, the phrase, we are commanded by the father, means that the father gave a commandment to them and also to John. And he's overjoyed with seeing how they respond to it and that they're walking in the truth. So here we see now the transition from, from what John is noticing, but now what John is hoping. We see this in verse 5. All of a sudden there's this switch, and now I ask you. So all the nice things at the beginning of this letter, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. In short, John says that he's heard of the church keeping the commandment of the Father, and his desire is that the whole group continue to keep it, continue to press on, for the essence of love is keeping God's command. There's not a second level of followership that now they're ready for. It's not like, okay, you're grounded in the truth, and you've obeyed the commandments, and now here's this great starter pack of the next level that you can get in your Nintendo game. I was never good at, at those games because you, you run out of options or ideas. Now, I would always run out of ability. I'd, I'd get to level one of like Commander King and be like, you know what? I don't understand what's going on. I certainly don't want to buy another deal. And here John is writing to his people. That was a totally bad distraction. But here John is writing to his people. <laughs> and he's saying, be grounded in the truth. Walk in obedience. Be grounded in the truth. Walk in obedience. Be grounded in the truth. Walk in obedience. The structure of this text, we see that he's giving this normal introduction to a letter in verses 1 through 3. He, he overwhel he's overwhelmed with great uh, joy in verses 4, and then he transitions into this action that he's desiring. He wants them to do something, and he tells them that they should love one another. And he explains it a little bit, and he repeats himself a little bit. And the author has to stress the obedience all the more, even though they're living in obedience. I think this is what we would call in, in ship language, you know, bearing down the hatches or tightening the hatches. Someone's going to tell me later, like, that's not it. But, you know, where all of a sudden you're doubling down on what you weren't supposed to do. The storm is coming, so you tighten the sails. You see wind coming, so you board up your windows. But you keep doing what you've been called to do. Know the Lord and obey him completely. 
1 John 5 says, this is the love of God, to obey his commands. 1 John says over and over, how do you know that you love the Lord? Do you obey him? Not are you awesome, not are you perfect, not do you have certain things, not are you rich, not only did you overcome that disease, not over anything else, but do you long to obey him? And this is where the flow of the Christian life takes place. This command is not new, but old, John says. Now, this is get confusing because in other parts, it's called the new commandment. But here, John is saying, it's not something new. It's something that we've talked about. Well, this book was written probably 50 years after Christ first talked about the new commandment, 40 or 50 years later. So that's, that's old by then, right? You, you, te- you teach your kids to take out the trash, and one week later, hey, we've talked about this before. This is an old command from me. So here, John is saying, this isn't something new that we've talked about. And part of the reason why he's bringing up its oldness is there are constant people coming in with this new enlightenment. God gave me this book that that is on top of the scriptures, and we must obey both of it. Or here's this New Testament that we were given that was given to me in a forest in Indiana. And he's saying, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that we've had from the beginning that we love one another. So it was new, but to his audience, it is old. And Christ's commandment for Christians to love one another is old, even though it's new in our lives continually. Jesus, we see in Matthew 5, had already commanded his disciples to love their enemies and to love their neighbors as themselves. And the new commandment demands that Christians love each other. Jesus' command to love those within the church was intended to produce a compelling testimony to those outside of the church. C.S. Lewis says that every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. Now I might ask you, what would make Desert Springs Church more awesome? What would make us greater? Bigger wings, a cooler playground, high-speed internet everywhere wirelessly? John would write to us and say, know the Lord and love others because the outside will see that as something unique. If we just bring up the demographics within this room, almost none of us are alike. Even the people who are related are totally different than one another. But what unites us to the world is something that seems unique in particular. In the new commandment, Christians are called not just to copy, but to share the love of God. Jesus prayed to his father, I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. The prayer followed naturally from two things. Love one another as I have loved you. And as the father has loved me, so I loved you. So the, the goal of us inside this body is to receive the love of the Lord, to receive the grace, mercy, and peace, and, and not just to be something that consumes it, but our lives are to be like a mirror where we reflect the light to other people, where the love that was given to us now is just a natural response as what we give to other people. So to love as Jesus loved is to love with the very love of the Father for the Son. As John put it, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
The first time this command appears is when the nation of Israel traveled through, traveled through the Sinai Desert. God told the people, love your neighbors as yourself. And he also gave them the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So how do we love God and love our neighbor? How do we love God and love other people? By obeying the commands that God has given us. I think, there are, I think the number is 59. It's either 59 or 49 or 69. 59 one another's in the New Testament. It's like we never run out of opportunities to grow in our love for other people. Are we doing those things? Are we known for our love for other people? Because if we're not known for our love for other people, especially our love for other believers with inside our fold, do we actually understand the gospel? John repeats what he writes earlier. We see in verse 6. He does this because we're forgetful people. We have a tendency to hear but not to listen. We hear the command, but we fail to obey. We, we need the repetition as a source of learning. Our conduct has to conform to that of Jesus. For whoever claims to live in God must walk as Jesus did. And so we need to remind ourselves of who Jesus is all the time. Or we need to ground ourselves in the gospel. And maybe this Christmas season will be a great opportunity for you to do so. Even if you don't, I mean, Christmas is like great for people with kids because you want to just buy a whole bunch of stuff that reminds you of the gospel, whether it's a nativity scene or the countdown. And you know what's better than candy on the 15th? The Lord. So it's great. But everyone else can participate like that as well. Reminding yourself of what the incarnation is and what it meant for God's people. That God, the Son himself, came as a baby and lived perfectly. And if anyone shouldn't be crucified, it was him. And he did this for his people. And he did this because Christian, he loved you. And he tells you to love other people. And so if you don't love other people, do you actually even know what Jesus did and who he did it for and why he did it? And if you know those things and you don't love other people, and maybe you're just an unloving person and you're needing more of gospel truth in your life. Love is not a fleeting emotion, but a lasting commitment. Love is a genuine manifestation and fulfillment of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. John says in 1 John 3, little children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So what can, how can you keep a life that is in faithful obedience. Here we see that, that John gives us three commands in this text. Three things that if you're walking away, what must I do? You know, how is this sermon applicable to me? What should I do for the rest of the day? First one, verse five, love one another. Verse six, walk according to his commandments. Verse six again, walk in love. But think about your own life. What keeps you from walking in faithful obedience? Instead of loving one another, you either don't know the true gospel or you misapply the gospel. Instead of walking according to his commandments, you either don't know his commandments or you have selfish sin against God's rule, either being prideful or resentful or being disobedient. Instead of walking in love, you might walk for your own gain, hoping that God will bless it if he just blesses you all the more. Believers are us like John refers to believers, but they're often, we, we often make believers them after we achieve what we want to achieve for ourselves. Now, if any of those or a collection of those are you in this case, I would encourage you that you, actually I would tell you, you must put your eyes on Jesus and see how Jesus has obeyed and place 
your trust in him for freedom uh, from your own sin and disobedience. Or to be brief, look to Jesus and walk where he walks. Jesus was and is the truth. He is the exact imprint and nature of the glory of God. He was perfect in nature and obedient in character. He was perfect in his humanity and submissive to the will of the Father. He sets us free from our own sin and disobedience by dying in our place. And he sends us his spirit who abides in us and gives us new breath and new life. The spirit is in us just as Jesus promised. He tore down the curtain between a sinful humanity and a holy God. And he mediates on our behalf. And by looking to him and looking at him and following him, worshiping him, resting in his work, walking in his spirit, you are now enabled to obey the commands with great joy. In the case of truth, we see him as truly God in the embodiment of truth. Where else would we look? Walking in the Spirit's power means we trust Him for not only our destination, but also our way of delivery. We cling to Him. We abide in Him. We seek Him in His commands. We step where He steps, where He guides. We want to go there. So in conclusion, we see John stepping towards an argument that he's going to make, that all of us encounter day in and day out. What do we do when we're faced with false teachers all around us. John is saying first, ground yourself in the gospel. Ground yourself in what is true. And then second, love one another. It builds you up and it builds them up. It makes us look completely unique to the outside. So are you grounded in the scriptures, understanding of who Jesus is? If not, ground yourself in the scriptures of who Jesus is. Are you found or known by the unity that you have with other believers? Are you known by your sacrifice and submission to the Lord and devotion to other brothers and sisters? If so, you're ready for what's next. You're ready for what to find out what John has. You're ready to defend the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to face the enemy and say, get out and face another brother and sister and say, come in. Now think about your story. Whatever you've got going on, could it be explained from the past? Who you are, could it be explained what Jesus did and what he continues to do for you? Or maybe put better, could he explain by and from Jesus' coming, living, dying, his resurrection, and now his reign? Friend, look to Jesus and remind yourself of who he is. Jesus is God. Jesus was obedient. Jesus demonstrated true love. And he calls us to follow him. And the outpouring of that will be confidence and faith as we love others in ways that we didn't deserve to be loved, but we can show them true love by pointing them to Jesus and loving them and how they need to be loved as his own brother and sister. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today thankful for reminding us from your scripture. Even from these short words of how great and glorious you are in giving us grace, mercy, and peace. Father, we pray for the courage that it takes to to know you in a world that wants to tear you down, 
to, to distract ourselves with you instead of distracting ourselves from anything else. Give us opportunity and boldness and courage to do that within our own personal walks or with the walks that you've placed us around. And Lord, we pray also that you would guide us to love other people in ways that we were loved with your whole life. Lord, we ask these things in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen.